Welcome, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join Pastor Ben Teethy for his message. We are in the midst of a series. The series is called Logos. Logos is the Greek word for word in the New Testament. And uh, we are focusing on the best Christian words. We're taking the greatest Christian words. Words are like sand shoes. They can get worn out. And uh, when they start getting worn out, you stop appreciating what you used to just love so much about them. Isn't that true? And so we're in a series. The series is called Logos. And we're focusing on the greatest Christian words, getting them out of our Bibles, out of our Bible dictionaries, out of Christianese, out of cliche land, and into our lives, into our hearts, and into our minds. So we're taking a fresh look at some words that actually quite a lot of us know these words real well. We've heard them many, many times. We use them many, many times. If you've hung around any, anything to do with church or Christianity or churchianity, then uh, you, there's some words that you just hear time and time again and you hear them quite a lot. Then sometimes familiarity breeds contempt or at least ignorance and, and those words don't mean as much to you as they once did. Or maybe you're new and you hear these words said but you're not quite sure what they mean when they say these words. And so we're taking a fresh look at some of those words and just appreciating how wonderful those words are. Who thinks that's a good idea? I sure do. The Bible's full of good words. So for our series today, I have my two brothers, Rupert Krauts, the Krautsinator, and I have uh, Dr. Koshy, the Dr. Koshinator. And uh, between the three of us, we're all just going to take a couple of moments each to share one point on today's new words. And we're focusing today on a pair of words that have a distinction that people are not always aware of. Our words are salvation and redemption. And each of us are going to take a little bit of time and unpack from a different perspective what these words are saying to us. Haddon Robinson is a great trainer of preachers and he used to say this that preaching is truth through personality and so what we're doing the truth doesn't change but because personalities change then everybody can see and communicate something just a little bit of a different way and you'll come up with your own insights as well which is pretty cool and so today the three of us are going to have a crack at bringing some truth through our unique perspectives on these words salvation and redemption you often see these words paired together they are often used interchangeably but the thing is they do have two distinct meanings salvation and redemption they're powerful words when we turn to the hebrew bible the old testament the word for salvation there it is up there if you're into tattoos that's a good one um, and on the bottom right hand corner of the slide you'll see how it's pronounced the the word is yasha and it is the hebrew word which means to enlarge to broaden to deliver to a spacious place and if you want to study hebrew it's a little bit of a complex language but the wonderful thing is in today's day and age there's so many great tools for studying hebrew one of them is the theological word book of the old testament it is the land mark resource for studying Hebrew you shouldn't sort of draw too many conclusions unless you check that puppy out first it's a big thick book you need about 10 Sherpas to help you carry the volume of them but in the theological word book of the Old Testament it makes the point that the Hebrew word for salvation yasha means this to deliver to a spacious place and it's a metaphorical word it's a picture word it's a picture that hits you probably more at your heart maybe than at your head and what it hits at your heart is it tries to ask you to conjure up an image in your mind imagine being crammed in in a tight space imagine being squished into a painful corner imagine being constrained imagine being pushed down and pressed on and and overbed and and just claustrophobic how many people here claustrophobic love crawling through the air con watching bruce willis at christmas die hard the best christmas film ever crawl through the air conditioning system and you break out of sweat because that tight confinement there's something about people that really don't like being confined 
And of course, the Hebrew language says, just the way you don't like being squeezed and pressed upon and confined. Salvation comes to you as this picture. Imagine you were pressed upon and confined and constrained, but now imagine you were delivered into a wide, spacious place, nothing but fresh air, blue sky on the horizon, baby. How many people? That's what Alice Springs is, right? We used to live in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or Tasmania, um, and, and there was traffic on everywhere on the roads, except for Tasmania where they can't drive yet, and, and um, they, there was just traffic and, 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 and you were constrained and contained, but then you moved out to Alice Springs and you said, man, you can see for miles around here, and how good is it having space? And people glad to be in God's own country? Just two of us, excellent, me and my homies. Yasha, to be delivered to a spacious place. And it's a metaphorical word that tells you that's the feeling of what happens, what the God of the universe offers each one of us. In fact, tells us that we need, you need to leave the pressure and the squeezing and the confinements of life and be delivered into a spacious place. When you turn to the New Testament, the New Testament authors, they choose a different word to talk to you about salvation. It is the Greek word sozo. And it means this, to save, to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger or destruction. And what's interesting, is before it was a Bible term, it was a doctor's term. You'd call the doctor when you were sick and the doctor would sozo you, would save you, would heal you, would cause you to be restored to wholeness, would cause you to be restored to health. You would be sozoed. You would be fixed up. You'd get a cure for what was wrong with you. And the Bible says, you know, that's what God offers the human race. Like the great physician, the great mendicant, the great healer comes and says, you need a cure. And it's called or translated for us as salvation. Here's here's the truth of what the Bible tells us about being a human being living in this world. We need salvation. We need salvation. Salvation is a need that a human has. Now I could talk for hours about this but I've got to give my homies here a go. Um, But if you read Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, one of the things you would be forced to conclude by reading God's communication to humanity is that you need salvation. The Bible looks human life squarely in the eye without fantasy, without embellishment, without moral piety and, 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 and without pathetic sentimentality that says everything will be okay in the sweet by and by. How many people know life is not always okay? Life is very rarely okay for a very large number of people and what they need is something to address the, the unokayness of life. Isn't that true? And the Bible looks life squarely in the eye. It says you're a human. And as a human, you have an existential issue. You have a problem. You have a crisis. Here's the first one. You have an internal issue, an internal crisis. Humans were made to live life a certain way. And instead, we are pervaded by guilt. And that guilt leads us to a sense of shame. And that sense of shame causes us to hide away who we really are and camouflage ourselves away so people don't spot our weaknesses and our shame and our vulnerability. Adam and Eve did it in the garden. They sinned, their eyes were opened. They then went and hid themselves. They made clothing for themselves from the fig leaves that God had actually given to them for food. What was meant for nourishment has now become camouflage, hiding, a coping mechanism, a self-defense mechanism. We have an internal problem. And we were designed for a fulfilling life, a fulfilling life of ruling and reigning with God and serving the world. That was the work God called Adam and Eve to. Work, good work, joy-filled work, fulfilling work. But instead, once sin has come into our lives, we switch it out and we are now faced with an existential crisis. Instead of good, fulfilling, joy-filled work, we have toil and labor 
now we have works and we do everything using our own works to try to change and save ourselves. We have an internal problem. Here is it summarised. We are strangers to Eden. We don't just have an internal problem. We have an external problem. Our relationships are fractured. We play the blame game, the exploitation game, the manipulation game, and we play power games. And Adam and Eve did it, and Cain and Abel did it, and Abraham's family did it, and Noah's families did it. And every human since, the Bible portrays a picture of people who are strangers to love and harmony. We have a problem. But we don't just have an external problem. We've got a cosmic problem because you and I, my friend, we are locked in a battle of good and evil. We are locked in that battle. Good and evil wage war all around us. They wage war inside us. Sometimes the good wins out. Sometimes the evil wins out. But we are locked in a cosmic battle. And because of that, we are strangers to peace. We are strangers to peace. It's not just a cosmic battle. This is an earth-shattering existential problem we have. In fact, the created order itself has been affected by these earth-shattering consequences. God gave Adam and Eve a job to serve the soil, care for the world, rule and reign, multiply and subdue creation. Look after it. Be caretakers of it. Look after and minister to God's world. And instead, we unleashed chaos instead of guarding against chaos. Ever wondered why in Genesis 2, God told Adam and Eve to multiply and subdue the world? What would need subduing in planet Earth if it wasn't perfect? And the answer is chaos roams. And instead of conquering it, they colluded with it. And now thistles and thorns, Genesis paints the picture. Now thistles and thorns grow up out of the creation. It used to be your food. It used to be your crops. Now it's thistles and thorns, spiky stuff that chokes out life. We have a spiritual problem. We have a spiritual problem because we're separated from our creator and rejected from his presence. We are strangers to God. We have a mortal problem. We suffer physical and spiritual death. And we have a supremely moral problem as humans. We will one day stand before God for judgment on our behaviours, on our life, on our choices. Judgment of our own collusion with chaos and our own disobedient actions. Because we are strangers to security, strangers to holiness, strangers to the righteousness of God. That's what Genesis chapter 3 teaches you and I about life as humans. And this entire state of being is addressed in the rest of the Bible as the state of sin. We are in a state of sin. Sin simply means this, to miss the bullseye of everything God has for us. The New Testament calls it this, refines, calls it life in the flesh. Life as a natural person, life in your natural, normal state left to your own devices. You are controlled by a sin nature because you are born into a state of sin. We need to be saved from this state. We need to be saved from the consequences of this state of being. And so does the world. And the loving and dynamic action of God saving us from this state of sin and its consequences is what the Bible calls salvation. And it does so in the form of a metaphor. In the story of the Exodus, God goes down to the people of Israel and he sees them as slaves under the evil dictatorship Egypt. 
under the evil dictatorship of Pharaoh. And God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring you my salvation. Exodus chapter 3, I have heard the cries of my people Israel. I have heard them under their slave drivers, and I feel compassion for them. Therefore, I will save you. I will lead you into a spacious land flowing with milk and honey and make you my people. See the metaphor there? Coming from the confines of Egypt, the megalopolis where you're making bricks without straw and and confined and constrained and contained. And now God says, I'll bring you into a spacious land flowing with milk and honey. And it's a metaphor for salvation that the New Testament picks up and says, that was the introduction, but in the New Testament, there's a fulfillment. And the fulfillment is found in the story of a person called Jesus, or if his mother would have called him Yahushua, Yeshua. The name in Hebrew related to the name Joshua, which is where the Hebrew word Yeshah is used. Jesus' real name, Yeshah, you are. The Lord saves. Through him we will be delivered into a spacious place. Through him we will be enlarged into a broad space. What the Old Testament sets up as salvation. God will lead you out of your Egypt. The New Testament sets up in the person of Christ. I will lead you through Jesus into salvation. And how does it happen? Salvation happens through this thing called redemption, which means to pay the ransom price. And it's a metaphor for a slave to be purchased out of slavery and given their freedom. Or for a prisoner of war to be purchased out of their prisonership and sent back home to their families to pay the ransom price. And the first ever ransom price, the first ever act of redemption was found in the book of Exodus when God went down to Israel in Egypt and saw a whole nation of slaves and a whole nation of POWs and paid a ransom price and brought them out into a new land. A lamb was slain and every one of them that had that blood of that lamb painted on the top of their life, the door lintels of their house, the spirit of death passed over them and they were granted life and allowed to exodus, to exit from Egypt and brought into the promised land. Redemption happened through a sacrifice so that Israel could leave Egypt In the New Testament, which fulfills the Old Testament, a sacrifice happens on the cross with not a lamb, but the lamb of God called Jesus. It's not so that one person could leave a nation called Egypt and go to a nation called Israel, but so that every person could leave the Egypt of sin and death and enjoy a life of eternal life. Enjoy a life where the consequences, the power and the penalty of sin are pushed back. Salvation is the cure. Redemption is how. We get the cure. Thank you. Good morning. It's on. Um, my name is Rupert, and I just want to share some thoughts of uh, this word salvation. Um, this idea of connect, grow, serve, lead, flourish, and influence, it's actually, we can only do these six things with salvation. We can do these things through the power and in the power of God. We can connect because we connect with God. We grow because we grow because of God's in us and, and serve because God served us through the cross. And so all these things comes down to salvation. Now when we use the word salvation, I grew up in a Christian home, so I've learned to speak Christianese from a very young age. Christianese and Bible babble is something you pick up when your father's a pastor. You say those words because, A, it gets old people off your back. It also uh, gets your parents off your back, uh, which really helps when you're in the church all the time because you have to be there, whether you fall asleep or not. 
Salvation is actually uh, one of those shin words because it's like redemption and uh, creation and justification. Uh, creation, when we look at creation, it's kind of like a massive thing because we look at uh, the planets, the stars, and we're blown away by God's power. But creation is only like a couple, you know, three chapters and then verses in Psalms and spread all the way through Peter. But those, it's only a very small amount of verses because creation is that, that's it. It didn't take, it didn't cost God anything to do creation because he's powerful. God can, that's why he said he made the stars also. No big deal. But when we look at the stars, we know it's a big deal. But for him, it's just also. But the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, salvation. So why salvation such a big deal? Because it cost him more. It cost him his son. Creation cost him nothing. Power which he has in abundance. But Jesus on the cross. So what to understand salvation, we have to understand what it actually means. Like I mentioned before, it's not a way to get your parents off your back. That's not salvation. Salvation is not to uh, fake a conversion so you can have uh, entry into the religious world. You can go to church now and you, know, and you can fit into this culture of the churchianity. It's not done for other people's benefit. So you're not doing it to make other people happy. It's indeed about yourself. Salvation is a gift from God. That's the first thing. Pastor Ben mentioned it before. It's a gift from God to us. Um, I always teach my children this. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who have the love of God and those who don't have the love of God yet. And when you see the world through those eyes, then all these other categories which we find ourselves in, the color of our skin... The culture, the language, our gender, all these other worldly labels, they don't fall into the Bible. The Bible only has this view. So what happened to me, my age, my gender, my skin color, God did this to me. He blessed me with all of this. And he's blessed you with all of that. So we can't use it to divide. We should use it to use it as a witnessing tool. And so here we have this salvation. It's God's idea. He loved us, so he did this. When we are saved, we are saved from the penalty of sin. So that means we're saved from the first death and the second death. So when death doesn't have a fear for us anymore, because death has no sting. He has conquered the grave. So God has given us life, and he's given us life eternal. So he saved us from the penalty of sin. He saved us from the power of sin. Power of sin, that means for the first time, after becoming a Christian, after being saved, I now have the power to exercise self-control. Before that, my father exercised self-control on my backside, which means he gave father control on my backside. So whenever I made a stupid decision, I know my father was there to control me. Why? Because my brain wasn't properly working, you know, because you're your boy, and that's okay. So your father controls you. Your mother controls you because it's external, like a donkey. You just, you know... But after the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you can have self-control. And one story after my salvation was when I started helping my mother clean the kitchen. And it wasn't even my turn. And my mother's response was, what do you want? (laughs) Why? Because that's what boys, you know, what do you want? What kind of present do you want? Is it some money or something? But actually, after a while, you start seeing things through God's eyes. And it wasn't a magic wand where you suddenly become holy. You know, you still fight with your brother and punch him accidentally in the face five times. But that's the thing. These things happen accidentally. You, you, you can't control it. 
Sometimes it just, you know. So we deal with these things, and that's why, you know, you, Jesus helps you with, with these things. But God gives you the power for the first time to have self-control, so now you can only punch him twice instead of five. Because, okay, it's coming down. Anyway, and then the last one uh, is God is, he saves us from the presence of sin. So he will one day save us from the presence of sin. So that means in heaven, we will no longer have the struggle with sin. The whole Romans 7 things, the things I want to do, the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. That whole flesh struggle will not be there anymore. But that's in the future. So going through life as a young person, and as any person, but going through life without the salvation, without the word of God, it's like walking through a landmine field at night, blindfolded in the mist, and then expecting not explosions to happen. It's going to go wrong. Without the word of God to guide you, explosions will happen in your life. I'm a third or fourth or fifth generation Christian. My father and mother raised me in a Christian home. Their parents separately raises them in a Christian home. Their great-grandparents, my great-grandparents in a Christian home, and so on. All the way from witchcraft to slavery to Jesus. And here I am 150 years plus later. Now, my sisters and I, we, we chose to follow Christ for ourselves. But there's a blessing in following after Christ when you are young. If you've been blessed with having Christian parents, then that is the blessing. I don't have a testimony of doing drugs and shooting people and going to jail and, you know, stealing cars and rap videos. And I don't have those kind of testimonies. The worst thing I did as a child was steal cookies. I used also bad words at school for which I got a hiding and detention and then punched my brother five times, which was, that's just family dialogue. But the thing is, so... That's my testimony. So my testimony is not one of I came from. Because I don't have the scars. I'm old now uh, by young people's standards. That's close to death. So I, I'm, I, I'm old now. So when I was younger, all I did was follow my mother and father's wisdom, their example. So when my father and mother advised me and said, this is how you treat women, how you treat girls, I go, hmm, okay, take that down. This is how you deal with alcohol. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I didn't have to go make stuff up. My father and mother modeled that for me, and I listened to them. I listened to them. So when I walk through my landmine field, I go, whoa, not there. Not there. Not there. Why? Because my mother and father, they were guiding me through God's word. To a place where I'm now, I'm married with my wife and children, and I don't have scars like that. My sisters and I were raised in this generational faithfulness, and now we have our own families. And it's amazing how wise your parents become. Over the years, as you get your own children, because your father and mother said the same stuff, but when you have your own kids, they suddenly become so much wiser. Well, it's, it's just because you were stupid. <laughs> when your, your children make you so much more mm, appreciate your parents so much more. Mm, exactly. When we are saved, we're saved because we're not saved to sit. We are saved to share. Share God's love with our family first, with our friends, and then all we meet. Our witness must be clear at work. When we say that we are Christians, it can't be a surprise to your colleagues. If they say, what? You? It can't be a shock. If it's a shock, then there's a problem. You know? We're not called to be secret agents for Jesus. We are called to be ambassadors. Yeah, good. 
So you see, secret agents, they infiltrate. We don't infiltrate. We get up onto the stage and we, you know, like pull the shirt out and S on the chest. And, the, you know, Jesus, this is, I'm, I'm with Jesus. My, my flag is with this Christ. Jesus didn't make sick people better. He made dead people alive. You see, we do not walk into his light. He crashed into our darkness. And so when we see these things, God takes us and he says, well, you were there. And he turns you around and puts you towards eternity. Following Christ is the most profound decision, destiny altering decision you'll ever make in your life. And when you see things like this, I don't know actually how people um, navigate their lives uh, without Christ. Because if I look at, back at my life and I look at the things that, that could have gone wrong, if I made the wrong choice at that point, I go back to my mom and dad and I say, thank you for that example. Thank you for walking those steps in front of me. So that now, I have little feet behind me that are following me. So my children are looking up to me and going, what does Jesus look like? And I need to be the best mirror as a father to my children. And that's the challenge we have. I read this verse the other day, um, and I've been a Christian for more than 5,000 years. And so when you, when, you, when you read the Bible, you kind of just, you know, wash through the Bible. And when you're a Christian for many thousands of years, the verses just flow in and out. And you just quote them because your mother and father forced, you know, Bible, Bible stories at night and stuff. So you get Samson and all that. And this verse came out to me. This was two weeks ago. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, to your goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That shocked me. That was two weeks ago. I realized that you could actually be ineffective and unproductive in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the challenge for me was, am I ineffective and unproductive in my knowledge of Jesus Christ at my workplace, in my home? And that's the same challenge I'm putting to you. How can a young person keep their way pure? How can anyone keep their way pure in this age of digital oversaturation? How can anyone keep their way pure? Young people specifically because they are so easily tempted by the digital, the things in our pockets and these fancy things that that now bring sin into our private spaces where we can do it privately and sin digitally. How can a young person keep their way pure? How can any person keep their way pure? It's still the same. hasn't changed. By living according to your word. Jesus knew 2018 was coming. The internet didn't shock him. He wasn't like surprised. By social media, you know. There are many voices clamoring for your attention. But the temptations are all the same. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Always the same. The devil hasn't changed his plan. He, here's his plan. I'll let you in on a secret. He wants you dead and in hell. That's it. Simple plan. Sticks with it all the way. And if he can get, if he can get you hooked on drugs, if he can get you shot or in jail and destroy your life as early as possible... Mission accomplished. That's his plan. He hasn't changed. But you see, Jesus also has a plan. (laughs) You see, I came to seek and save the lost. (laughs) That's his plan. That plan has not changed. 
Pastor Jacob will share with us further on this verse. I just want to read it for us. It said, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We're not saved by works, we are saved for works. My prayer here this morning is that many here today, especially young people, would choose to say in the words of that Indian missionary who was martyred and when was given the opportunity to deny Jesus, they said, if you don't deny Christ, we will kill your children. And they did. And he said, the cross before me, the world behind me. And they said, if you don't recant Christ, we will kill your wife. And they did. And he said, though none go with me, still I will follow. And before he was killed, he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Have you ever been faced with a situation where you were totally out of your depth, totally unable to help yourself, totally paralyzed to a point where there was no way you were going to be able to do something for yourself? I think that's the, that's the uh, sort of premise we are talking about when we talk about salvation, that you are at a point in your life and you cannot do anything for yourself unless the Lord himself intervenes, comes in and helps you. You know, when I was in the fourth grade, I grew up in West Africa, in, a, in the nation of Nigeria. And one day in school, so there was the, we were going through a period in, in, in the town where there was a lot of fear because a lot of young children were being kidnapped. And the blame was being placed on uh, wandering tribesmen called the Fulani who would take their cattle through different parts of that area. And they said, oh, it must be them. And they said they were, they were kidnapping kids, they were killing them, sacrificing them, eating them, all kinds of weird things were coming out. But there was a lot of fear around the time. And uh, one day at school, during the lunch break, my friend said, look, there's this great tree not far from here, which has some amazing fruit. Let's go pick the fruit, eat it. And then we'll come back before the uh, before break is over. So we all went. I think it was four or five of us. We reached there and we had to go through some long grass. And finally we got to the tree. And just as we rounded the tree, there in front of us was this Fulani tribesman with his goats. <laughs> and my friends freaked out. Freaked out is, is, is a mind, mind, mild term. <laughs> they started screaming and shouting, Hey, it's him, it's him, he's coming to kill us. He's going to take us. And they started running. And the poor Fulani man, I think he, had a, he almost had a heart attack. Because there he's minding his sheep or goats. And suddenly these kids come and start screaming at him. And anyway, so he, he, he's standing there looking bewildered. And the, these guys are all taking off. And I'm standing there 
looking at this guy and I'm completely paralyzed by fear. I just, my feet just turned to lead. I don't know, I've had dreams like that sometimes, but this actually happened in real life. I'm looking at him and I cannot move. I can't even turn. Absolutely paralyzed looking at him like that. Anyway, I'm standing there and suddenly, I'm thinking this is the end. I'm done for. And then suddenly this pair of arms suddenly grabs me and next thing I know, I've been hoisted onto the back of one of my friends who's a big fella. And he's running for his life with me hanging on for dear life on his back. <laughs> but you know what? I was so relieved. Honestly, the relief I felt, I felt hanging on to him, knowing that I was being carried to safety, was incredible. Immense relief. And, and I just, that, that picture is what keeps coming back to me when I think about salvation, you know, that I am unable to, I am paralyzed, I am just in this position where I am helpless and weak. And God in his mercy reaches out with his strong hands and he holds me, grabs me and says, come, I'll take you out of this. Yeah. You know, when I was in, in the seventh grade is when I made a decision for the Lord. It was a conscious decision. But it involved the faithfulness of a, of a woman of God. She was an American missionary who was teaching in our school. And she taught Christian religious knowledge. So we could choose between Islamic religious knowledge or Christian religious knowledge. And the teacher was this lady. And I had grown up in a Christian home like Rupert, many generations of Christians before me. But never come to a point where I accepted Jesus as my savior, never heard the gospel, never heard it ever preached that I had to turn and make a decision. And this woman of God, who was just my teacher, came to me during a lunch break, sat me down and shared clearly the gospel with me. And that was the day I made a decision for the Lord. A day when I turned around and said, yes, I believe I need salvation. And, and the only way I'm going to do that is by making a conscious decision and accepting Jesus into my heart. So that was in my seventh grade. And that is where I started my Christian walk, in a sense. There is one passage in the Bible that I feel is just incredibly powerful that shows us what salvation is all about and, and describes for us what happens, the process that happens as we come into knowledge of Christ and that passage is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And allow me to read it for you in, in the Good News Version. And I, I have already said in the first service, please forgive me for those of you who say the Good News should not be even be read in church. But it says, in the past, you were spiritually dead because of your disobedience and sins. At that time, you followed the world's evil way. You obeyed the ruler of the spiritual powers in space, the spirit who now controls the people who disobey God. Actually, all of us were like them and lived according to our natural desires, doing whatever suited the wishes of our own bodies and minds. In our natural condition, we, like everyone else, were destined, the word is destined, to suffer God's anger. But, I said it's a big but, there's some big buts in the Bible. This is the biggest of them all. Verse 4. But God. But God's mercy is so abundant. And his love for us so great. 
that while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience, he bought us. He brought us to life with Christ. It is by God's grace that you have been saved. In our union with Christ Jesus, he raised us up with him to rule with him in the heavenly world. In the NIV, I think it says he seated us in heavenly places. And he did this to demonstrate for all time to come the extraordinary greatness of his grace in the love he showed us in Christ Jesus. For it is by God's grace you have been saved through faith. It is not the result of your own efforts, but God's gift. So no one can boast about it. God has made us what we are. And in our union with Christ Jesus, he has created us for a life of good deeds, which he has already prepared for us to do. A few things about salvation, just to bring together everything we've been hearing about from the beginning, including what Pastor Ben shared, what Rupert shared. First thing I see here is that salvation is from sin. Amen? It says, in the past you were spiritually dead because of your disobedience and sins. How many of you are fans of the, of the series The Walking Dead? No? No one? Amazing. You are all such spiritual people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why well, Minnie actually is she's a great fan of it. So those were the, that was like the zombie apocalypse, zombie apocalypse and and the, all these zombies walking around, a lot of gore and blood and and death. It's just the kind of movie you would love, Pastor Ben. And and it was just just incredible, but you know what? Before them, we were the true walking dead. Dead in 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 our sin, but walking around. <laughs> You know, I actually googled, how do you treat a zombie? <laughs> it's amazing. And there's actually a website, a medical website that talks about zombies. And it says, one of the, there are different things that you can do to contain a zombie uh, apocalypse. But one of the things is, if you can identify early enough the, the starting point of the virus that caused it, and you, you know exactly where those, those target group of people are, you wipe them out. So you just send in missiles or something. It doesn't matter if there are normal people around. Judy, you will love this. It doesn't matter if there are normal people around. You just wipe them all out. And that apparently, <laughs> that apparently is the most effective way to stop a zombie apocalypse. You just wipe everyone out. There are other things, but that, that takes a lot more time. So this is much easier anyway. The wages or the payment for sin is death. We were born in sin, right? Man does not become spiritually dead because he sins. His very nature is sin. And Pastor Ben touched on that. Where from the beginning, we, 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 we have a fallen nature when we disobeyed God. And so, because of the condition of every human being since that fall has been that nature of sin within us. Except for Jesus, of course. So every believer, every, every, every person born has, is totally out of harmony with his environment. But more importantly, he's out of harmony with his creator, God. He cannot have any meaningful relationships with people around him. Because he's out of meaningful relationship with his creator, God. He is spiritually dead, even though being physically alive. And what is, the, what is the nature of one who is dead? He does not respond to anything. You know, when we were in medical school, one of the first things we had to do was, in first year, was do dissection. 
We were doing it on dead bodies, for sure. The dead bodies never complained. They never woke up and said, Yow, that hurts. <laughs> Nothing like that. We cut them up, we cut them up, we sliced them open, we learned everything we could with a great deal of respect, I must say. But a dead person does not react. Similarly, when we are spiritually dead, we don't react to anything spiritual. We cannot. We are just so blinded by our sin and what we have been in and by our nature that we just can't respond spiritually to the, to, to the, to the promptings of God in our life. Men apart from God are spiritual zombies. The walking dead who do not know that they are dead. We go through the motions of life, but we do not possess life. The second thing I see is that salvation is by love. It says in verse 4, but God's mercy is so abundant and his love for us is so great that while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience, he brought us to life with Christ and it is by God's grace that you have been saved. God's mercy. It is rich. It is overabounding. It is without measure, unlimited you know what the problem with reconciliation is? It's not, it's not on God's side. We were the ones who rebelled. We are the ones who rebelled against God's nature. We, we are the ones who rebelled against his lordship, against his love. But God, you know what? He is intrinsically kind. He is intrinsically merciful. He is loving. And in that love, he reaches out to us. To a vile, sinful rebellious, depraved, destitute, condemned human being like me, he reached out to me in his love. And he offers me salvation. And he offers me all the eternal blessings it brings. You know, if a person was driving down the street and accidentally he hit a child and the child died, he would have to face the justice of the, of, the, of the courts. He would be charged. There would be a penalty laid, a fine maybe. He would be charged with, with manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter maybe. He would have to go to jail. I have a lawyer in the house, so forgive me if I say the wrong things. But he would go to jail, serve his time, and that would mean that he has then served out his punishment that he, he was due to serve. And then he comes out. But does that in any way respond to the pain and, and separation and the grief of the parents of the child who is lost? It doesn't. And can there be any reconciliation or relationship built up between him and the parents? It is impossible unless, unless the parents of the child will forgive this man or this person and then you can have a reconciliation. We have a God who did not wait for us to go to him. But we have a God whose love for us was so incredibly abundant and, and his, his desire to have relationship was so great that he came searching for us rather than waiting for us to go to him. Because of my great love for you, your penalty has been paid. My law's judgment against you has been satisfied through the work of my son on your behalf. And for his sake, I offer you forgiveness. And to come to me, 
you only need to come to him not only did his love well, not only was his love enough to forgive but it was also enough to die for the very ones who had offended him the third thing i see is that salvation is unto life while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience it says he brought us to life with christ and it is by god's grace that you have been saved above all else a dead person needs to be made alive and that is what salvation gives us spiritual life you know paul is speaking to the believers in ephesus and he is encouraging them those of those of the believers who doubted the power of christ in their lives he is reminding them that if god was powerful and loving enough to give them spiritual life together with christ he is certainly able to sustain that life the power that raised us out of sin and death and made us alive together with christ is the same power that continues to energize every part of our christian living hallelujah salvation is unto life we were dead we could not respond in any way shape or form to the spiritual promptings of god but by salvation we are made alive and our spirits then change and we are now more able to understand accept and and allow that love of god to then wash over us and respond to what he wants to do in us the fourth thing i see here is that salvation is with a purpose in verse 6 it says in our union with christ jesus he raised us up with him to rule with him in the heavenly world or he seated us in the heavenly places it says he did this to demonstrate for all time to come the extraordinary greatness of his grace in the love he showed us in christ jesus the most immediate and direct result of salvation is to be raised up with him and to be seated with him in the heavenly places my goodness when jesus raised lazarus from the dead the first thing he tells them is unbind him take off those things that that hold him down and let him go because as a living person you cannot have those things of old the things that kept you bound still holding you back and preventing you from doing everything god wants you to do a living person cannot function while you are still wrapped in the trappings of death because when we have a new citizenship through christ our new citizenship is in heaven and god seats us with him in the heavenly places it says in christ jesus so we are no longer of this present world or the sphere of evil that is around us but you know what he is doing he is saying i am placing you in a sphere of 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 the spiritual world where god is in control and god is in authority he is not saying oh when you die and you go to heaven then you will have those incredible blessings that god has for you and you will live in eternal bliss and blessing he is saying when you accept me now i right now i am going to seat you with christ in the heavenly places in a realm where you are ruling with christ over the evil powers that we have in the world that is the life that is how exciting it is once you have accepted jesus as savior that is your position in him you are no longer 
living a life of defeat. You are no longer, you're not condemned to live a life that is ordinary. You're not condemned to live a life that is without the power of God in you. But you have now been placed at a position, a position that allows you authority and power in your life. The Greek verb behind being seated, it emphasizes the absoluteness of this promise by speaking as if it had already fully taken place. Even though we are not inheritors of all that is yet to come, we have this already given to us. We are in a sphere of spiritual life instead of a sphere sphere of spiritual death. This is where our blessings are and where we have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. The next thing I see here is that salvation is through faith. There is nothing you or I can do to earn our salvation. It is not the result of our efforts, but it is a gift from God. And our response is faith. Believing that God, when I trust in him, is able to do what he has promised in his word. You know, there's a story told of a man who wanted to attend a revival meeting by an evangelist. But he gets stuck somewhere and he arrives late and he is, he's running there, anxious to, to hear because he's heard that there, this, this evangelist was talking about how to be saved. And he comes in there and already the meeting's over, the tent is being dismantled. And there's this workman there and he runs up to him, frantic. And he asks the worker, what can I do to be saved? And the worker who's a Christian says, you can't do anything, it's too late. Man's horrified. And he says, What do you mean? How can it be too late? And the man says, the man says to him, You don't have to do anything. The work has already been accomplished on the cross. All you have to do is believe. Believe. The next thing that I see is that salvation is unto good works. God has made us what we are in in our union with Christ Jesus. It says he has created us for a life of good deeds which he has already prepared for us to do. When man was created in, in the Garden of Eden, God placed certain conditions over him that he had to fulfill. But also told him that I have placed you here to be able to work the land. I've brought you here to be able to expand the kingdom of God. Pastor Ben talked about that. But because of our disobedience, we, we, that work, that the good work that God wanted us to do has become toil, as Pastor Ben said. It's become hard work for us. But now that we have been reawakened spiritually, now that we have been given life through Jesus, we have an opportunity now to partner with God to begin to do the works he initially intended for us to bring the kingdom of God down on the earth to expand the kingdom of God to be able to move through this land in the power that the spirit of God gives in us and to show people there is a better way of life there is a kingdom way of life not the way you are living not the death and destruction your life brings to you but I am going to show you a better way of life the kingdom way of life that says there is a different more incredibly fruitful blessed life that you can live 
You know, there is no good work that you can do that can produce salvation. But many good works come from salvation. Good works do not bring discipleship, but they prove that your discipleship is genuine. The same power that created us in Christ Jesus empowers us to do the good works for which he has redeemed us or which he has saved us. You know, Paul's primary message that he is sharing with the Ephesians is to believers. And many of them had experienced salvation as I believe many of us here today have experienced. There are some I know in this room today maybe who have never made a decision That one decision where you say, I'm going to draw a line in the sand of my life and I'm going to turn away from the way I've been living and turn toward God. But a lot of us are like the Ephesian believers. We did make a decision. We were saved. We experienced salvation. But now Paul is not showing them how to be saved. But he is convincing them that the power that saved them is the same power that keeps them. And just as they already have been given everything necessary for salvation, they have also been given everything necessary to live a fruitful, productive life. (laughs) The greatest proof of a Christian's divine empowerment is his own salvation and the resulting works that come out of that relationship with God. Rupert talked about that, and I cannot emphasize that anymore. That if we call ourselves believers if we say we have been made alive through the decision we made when we accepted Jesus into our lives if we say that when we decided to accept Christ as Savior when we made that decision the Holy Spirit came and lived in us and gives us the same power that was used to raise Christ from the dead that same power lives in us then there has to be an incredible outshowing of that power living within us Our attitudes, our words, the way we deal with people should be completely different to the way we were. Are we or are we not? You know, I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 1 where he's talking about the decision they have made and he says, I urge you, I who am a prisoner because I serve the Lord, Live a life that measures up to the standard God set when he called you. Last week when Mez was talking about salvation and talked about, sorry, she was talking about the decision that Paul made where there was such a change in his life. You think he was, he was a man who was on the opposite end of the spectrum persecuting the church and then as he is met by the power and the love of Jesus on the road to Damascus. The entire course of his life is changed. That same Paul is now saying the power of God that changes you, that causes you to be saved from from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That same power lives within you to be able to live a life that is victorious, a life that glorifies God, a life which people will look at you and be amazed when they see how much you are like Jesus. Paul goes on to say, live a life that measures up to the standard God set when he called you. And then he gives us a few examples. He says, be always humble, gentle, and patient. Show your love by being tolerant with one another. 
Do your best to preserve the unity which the spirit gives by means of the peace that binds you together. You know what? He's talking to believers here. And I think sometimes as believers we can be most difficult with other believers. We may give a lot of grace to non-believers, but in the church we say, "Oh, they are part of the church, they should know better." And we treat our own brothers and sisters poorly. But if we truly are living a life that glorifies God, are we humble like Jesus was humble who had all the authority in heaven and earth given to him and yet he chose not to grasp that authority but humbled himself to a degrading demeaning death on a cross. Are we gentle? Meek is the other word that is used. where we are careful in the way we deal with people we don't lord it over people but we are gentle meek in the way we deal with people are we patient with people and do we show our love by being tolerant with one another when i made my decision to accept jesus as my savior i expected that things would change in an instant that my life would change that i would have no more issues with temptations and stuff but what i found was that i was still having trouble difficulty falling in same temptations and what i have discovered is that the process of salvation once you have accepted jesus and the spirit comes and lives in you is not just something that happens suddenly and then it changes completely it is a process every day of your life you need to come to his feet you need to submit to him over and over again you will not win you may not win victories in one instant you may fall but you will come back to his feet i come back to his feet i ask forgiveness and i say holy spirit give me the strength to live the life that you want me to live may god give you the ability to understand the depth and height and width of his love for you read ephesians go back tonight read the book of ephesians be blessed in your soul as the spirit begins to wash over you with the things that god is able to do as he reminds you of what he did for you and what he expects of you in the light of his incredible love for you god bless you We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.